Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 305 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where we have an awesome, nurturing, supportive writing community for everyone who wants to get published and write with confidence. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Well, actually... To be honest with you, Valerie, yes. I'm thinking about showers. Huh? I know. <laughs> it's really random, isn't it? But I was just sitting here thinking about showers. I remember us having a conversation quite some time ago now, because this is not something that we discuss on a regular basis, um, about, you know, ideas and where you get your ideas and all that kind of stuff. And I'm pretty sure it was you that said that you often get your ideas in, in the, the shower. shower. Yeah, for sure. Is that you? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, well, I, I must have been channeling you because I had one in the shower. Only one. <laughs> well, no, but one really good one, one solid one. Okay. Like, you know how you can have kind of random ideas. You and, mean like and for things a book like or for? Yeah, yeah, for a book. Like I, it was, and it was quite a moment. So I, I just decided I'd mark the occasion by sharing with you that well, I also had an idea in the shower. Fantastic. Actually, to clarify, I solve problems in the shower and I get ideas in the car. Oh, wait a minute. Now you're changing. You've moved yeah, the goalposts. Yeah, yeah. See well, right it there, is everyone. Sort of, this is what she does. She it's sort of an idea, to, an idea to solve the problem, right? So mm. I, I find if I have a problem or a thing that I need to figure out, that's where it gets solved in the shower. But mm. so often in the car, because I've got quite a long drive, um, I I will I'll come up with ideas. And it's kind of frustrating because – um, you can't write them down. <laughs> but does that mean that you're sitting in silence in the car? No, not always. I um, Sometimes I'm sitting in silence. Sometimes I'll have music on. Sometimes I'll have a podcast or an audio book. But sometimes the podcast or audio book gives me an idea. Oh, but it, it, it's just the act of being in the car. I don't, I don't know. I have right. lots of ideas in the car. So um, I, I like it when I'm in an Uber or something because I can write it down. But it's very frustrating. My friend, she drives around <laughs> with a post-it, um, a stack of post-its and a pen, um, and she sticks one onto the middle of her steering wheel. <laughs> so she can write her ideas down yeah. as she's driving. <laughs> I'm hoping she's only doing this when she's pulled up at traffic lights or something and not actually while she's on the run, you know, like driving in traffic. Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> and Indeed, I have another hope. friend. This is this is for real. This is so ridiculously old school. Um, she still has a cassette recorder. Like with the like actual cassette. With the little tapes. Yeah, with like the, the tapes. little mini one with the tapes. Um, like we used to use for interviews. Because I've still got think, one of those. I've still got think, one. No, I don't use it. No, but no, I still no, have no. It. I've seen it. I actually think it's a big cassette. Oh, an actual like yeah, Walkman it's style very thing. chunky. It's very old school. It should be in a museum or something. And she, she could you could be having a coffee with her even. So she does this in the car as well. But you 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 could be having a coffee with her and you've said something that you know. She, like a great TV show she should look up or, or a resource that would be useful to her. She'll whip out her cassette recorder and she'll just say, Valerie says I should watch Succession or something. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. And she does this all the time. So she does it in the car as well. So she'll record, oh, you know, remind Valerie I need to tell her about the 
the toll from on the East Link freeway or something. And um, <laughs> see, the thing with me is, I would do that, but then I would never ever listen to oh, it no, again. She has I would a never transcribe it ever. She, yeah, she, as soon as she gets into her office, she transcribes immediately what's on her cassette. <laughs> or she could carry a notebook and write it down and just skip a whole step. Yeah, but that's just that not what she would do. Okay. She just talks it into her cassette. I'm not kidding. It's really bizarre. So she's had to, like, find cassettes. Yeah, because they're actually not that easy to find anymore. Because <laughs> Book Boy had a thing there. Like, you know, he's, he kind of is going through this random. I think he's just a hipster in the making. I'm waiting for the beard any minute oh, now. No. Um, not that he could grow one just yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's working on it. Um, but, yeah, he goes through phases of, I really want to make a mixtape. Oh, dude, you so oh, don't want to do that. Like, it's awkward. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He does. Then he you'd need make- a tape to tape. Well, he wants the whole, you know, and he wanted to be able to do the, you know, I was telling him how when we were kids, you know, you'd, you'd be listening to the top American top 40 yeah. and you'd be desperately waiting for your favourite song and then you'd have to hit record just as it started. Yes. And, case, and then you were, and then they started talking towards the end of it and they'd be over the top of the song and it was, oh, devastating. With Casey um, Kasem. Remember with that? Casey Kasem, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling him all about this and he he decided that he wanted to have a crack at this and I was like, no, you actually, like really, the, the world has moved on for the better in many of these things. Yeah. Actually has. So, yeah, no yeah. Casey Kasem for him. Yeah, we used to yeah. listen to it when I was a kid. They used to play it on um, when I was young, young, like this is under 10. We were in Alice Springs. They used to play it on Radio Alice 8HA. <gasps> Oh we still listen to it on that, yeah. I read Casey Kasem's son once or several did, did times. You tell me, have we had this conversation? Why Why did you meet him? Remind oh, me. He was an MTV VJ in, of all places, Singapore where I worked for Cleo for a while and oh. so we used to do photo shoots with him and stuff like that. Right. Anyway, anyway we should probably move on. <laughs> Let's just... move on. We want to give a big <laughs> shout-out to uh, another American Arnold Howard. Arnold kindly left us a review on iTunes entitled From a Fan in Texas. I think that is so cool. Texas. Hi, Arnold. Yes, I love Texas. Well, I watched Dallas when I was young. (laughs) Oh, seriously. I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) No, I have been to Texas. I have been to Texas. I went to Houston, I think. Um, So Arnold says, Al and Val bring writing inspiration and knowledge from the other side of the planet. I've been listening to them while doing carpentry in the hot Texas sun. They have great radio personalities and voices and their accents make them feel like characters in a place you can call home. (laughs) I love that. As I G'day, listen, Arnold. <laughs> as I listen, I imagine I'm in the outback of Australia. Thank you That's for your great. interviews and laughs. Keep up the good work. You have changed my life as a writer. Oh, Arnold, that thank is you so much, Arnold. So I, awesome. I love the idea of you doing carpentry yes. while you're listening to us as well in Texas. And you know, the builder would would very much approve of that. He mm. would love it. Oh well, I hope you're um, you connect with us in the Facebook group, Arnold. Uh, it'd be great to to um, you know put a face to a name. And thank you so much for taking the time uh, to leave us a review. And if any other listeners would like to leave us a review, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. So, and also if you're not in the Facebook group, make sure you join the listener community. Just search for "So You Want to Be a Writer" podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. 
All right, so now that we've been talking about all sorts of random things, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. So Stephen King has decided mm-hmm. that he is going to um, ensure that his house becomes an archive and writer's retreat. How cool is that? Mm. I know it's kind of crazy, isn't it? He uh, There was a post in Rolling Stone magazine and it was updated uh, recently as mm. well. He has um, basically they're at the very beginning of planning a writer's retreat at um, at the house in Bangor, Maine. It, it's going to be turned into an archive and retreat. It looks mm. like a gothic mansion, like it's amazing. It really does, yeah. um, you can, can imagine Kathy Bates wandering out the front stairs there. Mm. Um, so the uh, we are in the very beginning of planning the writer's retreat at the house next door, providing housing for up to five writers in residence at a time. They are one to two years away from operating as a retreat. Um, but it's pretty exciting because yes. I, I can imagine that just going and sitting in this very cool looking house, I'll put the link in the show notes, um, would be quite inspirational in itself. But I am a little bit concerned because I think I would have, you know, scary dreams oh, I would, while I was I, there. I, I would totally have scary dreams so yeah yeah it would freak me out a bit but it is a beautiful looking house and imagine writing there with uh four or five other writers at the same time and just feeding off that legacy and that creativity I mean that would be kind of cool I think that I could do it in the day and then <laughs> once it got night time I'd probably have to leave well I think so too and it, it's and the, it, the the whole place is painted red like mm. it's a blood red mansion and it's got these kind of like winged bats, bats. and things like that on the gates and mm. like it's yeah I, I yeah I don't know that I'd sleep there <laughs> <laughs> but if you're writing horror or thriller maybe it would be a good source of inspiration but absolutely um, yeah it's it won't be too long and maybe you'll be able to write there as well so that's pretty exciting it is Now, I wanted to move on and talk about something that I'm seeing a little bit lately because, of course, we all love a bit of travelling, right? And some people want to be travel writers and a lot of our graduates of both our freelance writing course and our travel writing course have successfully become travel writers. They're getting famils, as in familiarisation tours, which are, you know, media junkets where basically you get to go on an all-expense-paid trip to a whole variety of different places. They're great fun. They're, They're quite intense because you have to pack in a lot and you have to follow Mm. the itinerary that they set for you but um, everything's organized for you which is a great way to see the world Um, now the thing is though when you travel writing you don't have to go on one of those junkets in order to travel right you can go on your own trip but also you can travel right at home you can write about your own hometown you know when I was living in Melbourne I wrote about um, Melbourne for um, uh, overseas uh, travel magazines and I think that um What's really important is that if you're dipping your toe in the travel writing world is to make sure that, number one, you read other travel articles. Mm. It's one of the most important things to see what they cover, to see how they're structured um, and to see the kind of information they include because the single biggest mistake that aspiring travel writers make is that they they write it like a travelogue, like a diary or like it might appear on your blog, or like literally an account, a chronological account of events mm. where, you know, I did this on day one, this on day two, this on day three, which might work sometimes, but more often than not doesn't. Mm. And what's really important in a travel article is just not to describe what you did because that's not what a travel article is about. It's not mm. your diary. 
It is to add value with information, useful information that the reader is not going to know. So it does require research, not just here's what I did, here's what I saw. You do have to research. You do have to talk to people, talk to the baker, talk to the, you know, boat builder, talk to the the guy who runs the local, uh, you know, the, like the, the, the popular chef in that town. And add value because your story still needs characters because it would be just a bit boring if you were the only character and it was I did this, then I did this, then I saw this, and I saw the sweeping vista of the volcano. Um, You need to think of other ways to add value and every um, travel article actually needs to be jam-packed with information but not in a way that feels like you are jamming information into it. It can't just be an encyclopedia list of facts you need to weave that information in. And the best example I can, um, one of the best examples I can provide is if you look at the New Yorker and you look at the listings, you know how they got little listings? They're only like 30 words or something Yeah. of um, the jazz that's on at this venue or the symphony that's on at this whatever um, concert hall is that they're tiny little listings. And yet in those 30 or so words, it's packed, every word counts, it's packed with information that you learn so much or as much as humanly possible in 30 words mm. um, in, in that listing. And that's the same with a travel article. You can't waste your words on these beautiful mm. blue sky and the sweeping vista of the mountain range and, you know, all of that sort of thing. You need to actually tell us it's 30,000 feet above sea level and was formed from this and this and you you can climb it in summer between the um, months of, you know, May and September or something, you know, mm. um, and it will take you two hours and that, you, you know, you should bring a picnic lunch because it's got a great spot with um, toilets and whatever <laughs> at the top. So you need to pack it with information and you need to ensure that you don't make it sound like, uh, a diary or a travel log, and that's the single biggest mistake aspiring travel writers can make. So I just thought I'd mention that because I'm seeing a few articles lately that, uh, you know, of people who have gone to really interesting places um, and you can tell that there's some useful stuff that they can share and that they did and they know it's in their head, but they've written in a way that is, I did this, I saw this. So you got to th- yeah. read more travel articles, you know. I used to like, I don't know, in back in the day when the Sydney Morning Herald was gigantic, mm-hmm. I used to buy my Sarah Lee croissant and not sponsored and my orange juice and on a Saturday morning and um, just settle in on a Saturday morning and read this gigantic paper. But one of the bits that I loved the best was, the travel section because at the time I was, you know, young and didn't have much money and I was just escaping into this world of travel. Did you ever have that kind of thing where, you know, you lusted after the travel stories? Um, yes and no. I tend to, like, I've always been more interested in, I used to love the Good Weekend magazine and mm. the, you know, like for me it was more about the, my favourite section of the paper was always the, um, I can't even think what it was called now, but, you know, the news features. What was that oh. called? Spectrum, not Spectrum, Spectrum. News Review? News Review, both. Spectrum I loved. Yes, yeah, Spectrum News Review loved. I loved. Um, column 8 I loved. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. So travel, not so much. Like I went, I travelled overseas for a couple of years and um, I tend to prefer to do it myself as opposed to read about other people doing it. Well, I, I couldn't that's... afford it at the time. So. Well, neither could I, but, you know, like I, st- I didn't necessarily want to know what I was missing out on maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and also the kind of travel I was doing at the time was, you know, um, youth hostels and backpacks and yes. and dodgy as like a lot of it was just dodgy as but yeah it was good anyway different right. time yes yes so anyway but um there's still a great appetite for travel stories as ev- and it's evidenced by you know all of the travel websites blogs and the travel section in the paper so if you are uh, thinking of getting into this area just there's the tip for you all right let's move on to our competition this week excellent We have three copies, and you can win one of them, of The Island at the Edge of the World by Deborah Rodriguez. And uh, we interviewed Deborah, um, and she was such a hoot on on this podcast in a previous episode. And uh, so um, from the author of the international bestseller, The Little Coffee Shop of Kabul, comes a captivating story set in the colourful but chaotic land of Haiti, as four very different women work together to find a lost child. Together, they venture through the teeming, colourful streets of Port-au-Prince into the worlds of do-gooders doing more harm than good. Voodoo practitioners, artists, activists and everyday Haitian men and women determined to survive against all odds. And if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll hear that Deborah always travels to the place that she is um, writing about and immerses herself in the culture, immerses herself into the local community and really draws on her personal experiences while she's there. Um, and and she's she was a cracker of an interview as well. If you want to win... Episode 210 for those interested parties. Thank you, Al. Um, You're most welcome. And if you want to win one of three copies of The Island at the Edge of the World, then go to writercentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 11th of November. That's writercentercomau slash win. All right. So, ow. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even have to speak. I just know what's coming. (laughs) Are you ready for the word of the week? I I don't know. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Fungible. That's F-U-N-G-I-B-L-E. Fungible. I, I want it to be about mushrooms, but I'm suspecting you're going to tell it's me that not. it's not. So do you know, have you heard that word? No. Okay. So I like this word because I heard it on my favorite TV show of the moment, Succession, not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> and um, oh, it's, it's such a good word. So in the show, what happened was a newly minted CEO of a big media company played by Holly Hunter told the founder of the company, like the Rupert Murdoch-type character, that she wanted to resign. So she had only just joined a CEO, but because of certain events that I won't spoil, um, she decided that she wanted to resign. And he told her, you're fungible. And I thought, and she said, no, I'm not. Anyway, that's not the nicest thing to say, but um, his point was that she was easily replaced. So she didn't say what are you talking about, which is what most people would say (laughs) under those circumstances, or wait a minute, I'll just get a dictionary, she said, no, I'm not. So here's the thing. That's a very interesting point, Al, because I had that thought as well. 
But um, my partner, he knew the word fungible and he said it's like a really common word to him. I don't know why it's not common to me because I did economics as well. But he said that it is a common term in economics, you know, that a a commodity is fungible. So because fungible refers to a good or commodity that is easily interchanged with another similar item. So, Um, in fact, she would have said, she, you know, no, I'm not, as opposed to what do you mean? Right. Because she wouldn't It all makes sense. Context, yes. see? Context, context is everything. That's right. Speaking of context, what? Yes. where does one even see Succession, your new, you know, oh, love of Fox your Tell. TV life? Foxtel. So season Fox two Tell. is just finished. Oh, my God, amazing. Um, but I assume that both seasons are available on, on demand or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, on Foxtel, totally worth it. So good. There's some Australians in it, you know, playing Americans. They're, it's that you'll recognise. Um, it's it, it's there's um, Matthew McFadden who played Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the acting is superb. The writing is superb. I'll stop going on about it because it's not okay. Great for You're very excited. I can it's, hear that lilt in your voice that says Val <laughs> is passionate. One of the best shows ever. Okay. All right. So. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it? It is Melanie Chang. <laughs> that was one of those awkward silences. I wasn't sure what I was meant to do. <laughs> All right. So you know, in the past, how we've had Joanna Nell um, on our podcast, who yes. um, is a GP and you know a doctor, and basically in her spare time writes these amazing novels. Yes. There must be something in the water because Melanie Chang is also a GP. Oh. And in her spare time writes short stories and novels and stuff like that. So um, her writing has appeared in all sorts of publications from The Age to The Australian to Mianjin, Overland. Um, Her short story collection, Australia Day, won the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Award and went on to win the 2018 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. And uh, her latest novel is Room for a Stranger. So let's have a chat to Melanie Cheng. Thanks for joining us today, Melanie. No worries. It's my pleasure. Now, congratulations on your book, Room for a Stranger. I am seeing it everywhere and it's in like all of the, you know, staff picks and all of the, you know, must reads of these bookshops that I'm going into. So very, very exciting. Now, for those readers who haven't picked up a copy of your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Uh, the book follows two main protagonists. Uh, one is Meg Hughes, who's a 75-year-old pensioner who lives alone except for her pet African grey parrot, Atticus. Um, and she's been the unfortunate victim of a home invasion. And this has really rattled her. And so she decides a little bit reluctantly to join a home share program in which she opens a room in her house uh, to a stranger. And the stranger that she opens this room to is Andy, who's a 21-year-old biomedical student in Melbourne. Um, And he also is a kind of reluctant participant of this home share arrangement. Um, His family's business hasn't been doing so well and while they can afford the tuition on his um, 
course, they can't any longer afford the rent on his uh, city apartment. And so he also agrees to try out this arrangement. And the book follows the somewhat unlikely friendship that develops between these two people who are seemingly worlds apart. Now, how in the world did this idea for this book form? What made you think, I'm going to write a book about this? Sure. Well, um, I've always been interested in these cross-cultural connections. Um, I suppose it relates to my background. Um, Having come from a mixed-race background, my father's originally from Hong Kong and my mum is originally from Adelaide, South Australia. And so I've always lived in this this space between cultures and I've always been fascinated by the interaction between people from different worlds and my life has, um, you know, been informed by those kind of experiences too. Even as a student myself, I lived with people um, during my medical training and have experienced some of the awkward interactions that take place in the novel room for stranger. But in terms of the, this actual premise of the home share type arrangement, that um, actually came to me through a brief news story I saw on the ABC one day, um, which was describing the, a very similar relationship between an elderly Australian woman and a Chinese student that had come to live in her house, although my my um, imagination is purely fictional, um, that was I guess the springboard for you know the premise for this novel, which I thought was just such a great kind of pressure cooker environment for two people that don't know each other um, having to share the intimate and claustrophobic space of you know a family home together. So yeah, you're so. you're also a general practitioner, so you're a doctor. When did you? decide that you were interested in writing? I've always loved writing and reading from a very young age and um, as, as long as I can remember I've been trying my hand at writing um, and so when it came to the end of high school it was always a difficult decision to make whether to go into the kind of more science stream or whether to go towards the more creative industries um, and I did have a very practical Chinese father who you know did did point out that it is hard to make a life as an artist <laughs> and um, um, that perhaps I should have a plan B um, unfortunately for me I, I was very interested in, in in the sciences as well and I, I did very much want a job that involved interacting with people perhaps more than you know sitting at a desk and um, and so um, I, I was not forced into medicine by any any means, but it was it was slightly reluctantly that I gave up, you know, the creative um, pursuit because I had, you know, at high school managed to balance the two. Um, and so it was really only once I finished my medical training and I had a bit more time on my hands that I decided that I wanted to, you know, reignite that side. And um, I came across this organization called the Creative Doctors Network. And I, I linked up with them and went to a couple of their events. And what struck me was that the doctors that were there, which were, you know, 
doctors who were doing photography and, you know, visual arts and um, not just writing and music, um, it struck me that those doctors were really quite happy <laughs> compared to some of the more burnt-out GPs that I'd met mm. in the travels or the um, consultants on the hospital wards. So um, I decided perhaps this is the good, the better path to take, um, a, a more well-rounded path. And so that's really when it started for me when I tried to kind of balance the two and yeah it's been it's been great one feeds into the other and Mm. I I really like having the two two different aspects to my kind of creative and yeah medical paths yeah Mm. and so when you decided that you were going to pursue this in parallel to your work as a GP what did that look like on a practical level did you have to carve out time after hours or on weekends or did you take a a bigger step and say, I'm going to do this one day a week or two days a week, you know, actually dedicate some work time that you were doing doctor stuff. Um, What, how did that look when you first started doing it? And also how does it look now that you're, you know, two books in? Yeah, I think it looks very different probably now than at the beginning. At the beginning I was still uh, working full-time, um, in, in medicine and really the writing was something I did in uh, stolen moments you know on the weekend mm. in the evening um, and really I, I I became more serious about it funnily enough when I became pregnant with my first child I guess I felt suddenly that I didn't have a lot of time um, you know available to me anymore and, and um, you know if I was ever going to do it I should should do it then. Um, and, but again, it was still very much in those kind of uh, spare moments. There wasn't a protected time. It wasn't really structured into my routine. Um, and the first book, Australia Day, was uh, the culmination of stories written in, in that kind of environment. Um, but obviously, after securing a book deal, you, you know, you've got a deadline and you can't necessarily just um, rely on, on, on those moments you know, coming about. And I remember my agent telling me, look, you're going to have to try and structure some writing time into your week. And it makes it much easier to do when you have an advance and a contract, you know, to validate taking that time. I think I probably wouldn't have have prioritized it in the same way, which is not the right thing. I think, you know, we should learn to prioritize our creative um, passions, but um, it is easier when there's someone kind of expecting something from you. So nowadays, um, I do have uh, one full day when the kids are at school and I'm not working, which is my writing day. And then there's a couple of other afternoons throughout the week. Um, and then I still do that stolen moment thing as well. Um, but especially with writing the long form novel, you really do need longer stretches of time. Uh, with short stories, you can kind of get away with a couple of hours here and there. But I found it a real struggle to do that with a longer form work. Mm-mm. Now, the the two main characters which you've mentioned are Meg, who's seventy five, and Andy, the international student, who's who's twenty one. Now, you're neither seventy five or twenty one. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Very much in the middle. <laughs> what did you draw on for you know the behaviours and the emotions and the and the and the the nuances and the language and the understanding of 
each other, not only from an age point of view, but also from a cultural point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I have been 2021. 20, um, okay, yes. So I did have some of that experience to call on. And, um, you know, Andy's training is similar to mine. I did move to Australia to study at age 19, around the same age that Andy would have first come to Australia. My experience is, you know, quite different from his because obviously I speak English, um, that is my only language. Um, and so some of the cultural barriers he experiences uh, are not my lived experience. Um, I do happen to now work um, at a university um, seeing, seeing university students. So I'm very fortunate that now I do have some insight through my work into what it's like to be an international student, um, as well as obviously when I was um, training, having friends who were international students, some of whom were from Hong Kong. Um, and so th that's where the work um, feeds in, you know, the medical work feeds into my writing. And similarly with the elderly protagonist, I think I've drawn very much um, on the experiences I had for almost a decade working in a community health centre in the western suburbs of Melbourne where um, the population was very much skewed towards the elderly and um, I did see a significant proportion of, of pensioner patients and some of those patients were my, you know, I guess doctors aren't supposed to have favourite patients but you do have favourite <laughs> And some of those older patients were my favorite patients because they had time, they were very keen to share their stories. Um, and as you kind of relax into your role as a GP, uh, you do start becoming much more interested in your patient's stories, not just um, reducing them to their you know, signs and symptoms. Um, and you start to appreciate how important the story behind the patient is. And um, so, so that's where I feel like I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't had those experiences um, in general practice. Mm. Now, this book has it, – it switches points of view between um, Meg and, well, it's third person limited, but still it's between Meg's, mm. you know, close point of view and Andy's close point of view. What did you have to do to get the right voice and to get really into the right point of view and the right, um, you know, tone so that it, it's, it, it was really clear that this was Andy's point of view and so on? Yeah, I think the was really no other way that I could have written this book. I couldn't have switched from first person to first person. And part of that is uh, relates to your last question in that I think to be able to write first person, you really have to be able to completely inhabit that character. And as you say, I'm not, a, um, you know, a, a Chinese you know, 21-year-old student, I'm not a 75-year-old elderly woman. And I I think I felt more comfortable being slightly distanced from them with the third person. And also the third person allows you to um, be, although limited, still observing them as well. Um, and the, this book is very much about observation because both 
Andy and Meg are, are quiet observers, I would say, of each mm-hmm. other and, and of the world. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought a lot about the point of view and, you know, in the end, I, I didn't think there was any other real way to, to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even in the collection, most of the stories I've written are from the third person limited, which, which is a, which is a point of view I really love. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you take us through a little bit of a timeline, you saw this article or this news story or whatever about that kind of sparked your interest. Mm. Take us from that to then how long afterwards did you think, oh, this could be a novel and then then how long to write the first draft and so on? Just Just a bit of a potted timeline. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's actually <laughs> a bit funny because um, – I, I, I guess I was a bit daunted at the prospect of writing a novel. I always wanted to. It was a secret dream of mine. I think I'd written it in my high school yearbook that that was one of my key, like, you know, bucket list ambitions. Um, but I had never, you know, I wasn't one of those writers that had lots of finished novel manuscripts under my bed. So when I wrote um, – the short story collection and that got shortlisted for the unpublished manuscript award, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Um, I suddenly got contacted by publishers and um, my agent. And when um, I was going around to publishers with my agent, my agent said to me, look, it would be really good if we could try and get you a two book deal and they were, publishers generally would love to have a novel because short mm. stories are quite a niche yes. um, market um, and it would be great to give them, you know, a short story collection and a novel. Um, and so she said, do you think you could give me a synopsis of a novel? And <laughs> just so, like that. <laughs> just like So literally within one night <laughs> I wrote the synopsis for A Room for a Stranger. No way. Um, yeah. So I've probably, I've probably seen the the ABC News piece maybe a month or so before. So it had been kind of swimming around in my head a little bit. But, you know, that was all, like, just this idea, nothing really concrete. Um, I had, you know, been toying with the idea of um, writing a story about an international student trying to settle in Melbourne. So that was there already. And I'd always wanted to write a character inspired by my aunt who was a carer her whole life um, and, you know, had a special place for me in my heart. Um, So, you know, it seemed um, like everything was kind of fitting together. But, yeah, I wrote so a chapter synopsis in one night before we went out (laughs) publishers to try and do them and interestingly um you know Atticus was there African grey parrot Atticus was there in the synopsis um a few things details weren't there like the love interests and I think Meg's illness probably wasn't there Uh, Andy's illness wasn't there but the the bare bones of it were there oh Um, my god I can't (laughs) believe that I can't believe looking back someone said to me the other day oh you really got to go back and look at that synopsis and and compare it to the book and yeah I, I probably should do that at some point um so yeah so then uh we were very lucky we got this two book deal with text and I think the deadline for the first draft of the novel was about 
two years after we signed the contract. But because we were doing, I was doing publicity for Australia Day for about, you know, a few months, um, I really only got writing, I think, on the novel. It would probably it was all up, you know, somewhere between 12 to 18 months to write the first draft. Okay, so you took about 12 to 18 months to write the first draft and that was based on the one day a week that you had set aside, you know, during your week? Yeah, well, you know, it's a little bit more than that, probably one day of afternoons here and there, yeah, so, you know, might be looking at 10 to 12 hours a week maybe, yeah. Right. Okay, so because you had already written the synopsis, Mm. had you pretty much, you you just, did you – need to wrestle with any plot ideas or you just needed to roll it out? I mean, that I know that makes it sound so easy, but you know what I mean? No, no, it was, it was really a struggle actually, I really? think I would say. I mean, I, the bare bones were there, uh, but, you know, I'd never written a novel before and so, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I remember um, – and I'm not a planner either. Where I mean, in all other aspects of my life, I'm very, you know, obsessive and a planner. But when it comes to writing, I, I don't actually like to plan too much because for me, part of the magic is actually not knowing what's happening. I'm kind of more, I go with the character, I try to know the character well and then kind of put them in these situations and see where it goes. So, yeah. um so, yeah, I found, you know, about a third of the way in, I felt pretty lost. And I remember, you know, doing a course at that point, and that was just such a great course at just just the right time for me, because my background is clearly not, you know, I haven't studied literature or creative writing. Um, and so that kind of gave me a bit of the, the ba- basics, um, which I really needed at that point. Um, and a lot of what I do is just from, you know, through reading and through instinct and emulation. Um, and so, um, you know, having someone just kind of teach me the, the nuts and bolts of, of structuring a novel at that point in the process was really, really helpful. Um, and yeah, so, so I didn't, I still, by the, you know, as I was writing it, I didn't know where these characters were necessarily going. I had a couple of major plot points, but yeah. And as, as I said, that's, that keeps the magic alive for me, not Mm. knowing where, what, how it's going to end. So you knew you had a certain deadline. You knew you had a day a week or 10 to 12 hours, if you included some of the afternoons. And with that though, did you then have some kind of target word count so that you could ensure that you had everything done in time or did you just, were you a bit free and easy about it? Oh, I I don't like to have these absolute word counts um, because I I, I tend to kind of beat myself up about things if I don't don't meet um, certain milestones. So I know that that's not going to work that well for me. But it's more about um, dedicating the the time, the fixed time to writing per day rather than aiming for a definite word count. Because also so much of the time I know, you know, you'll write – 
you know, so many hundred words. And then when you come to look back at it, you'll end up cutting that. So, you know, only a portion of the words you write will even go to the finished uh, novel. So um, it was more about the time I would spend sitting at a computer focused on the book rather than a dedicated word count. Mm. Um, and as you know, it's not a, it's not an epic saga <laughs> book. It's a, on the shorter side of a, uh, for a novel, but um, I think that was always going to be the case coming from a short story writer who's been taught to always choose words carefully and, um, you know, not overwrite. Yeah. So now that you've ex- done both, you've written a novel now, you've written <laughs> a whole lot of short stories, is there a preference and do you think you're going to go in one direction or another? Uh, I mean, I, I do love both. I, I, I have to be honest when I, you know, as a younger reader, I didn't read a lot of short stories and I'm guilty of really only coming to read short stories when I started writing them. Um, um, but I fell in love with the form and, um, so that, you know, short stories will always have a special place for me. Um, but, uh, I think you know, into looking forward, I would like to write another another novel. Um, I enjoy the you know the immersion um, that the novel allows, both for the writer and the reader. Um, but um, both, I think, the forms have their own challenges. Um, the short story was great for me um, when I had young kids and didn't have a lot of um, long stretches of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's challenging because, um, yeah, of the, uh, you, you know, it teaches you to be so disciplined and efficient with words, which, you know, I think can be useful when it comes to writing a novel as well. Yeah. So, so do you think, how about the next step then? Do you think you'll make a choice between being a GP and being a writer? Oh, well, um, I write literary fiction, so it's hard to make a living as a literary fiction writer, if we're honest. Um, but for the reasons I've touched on, you know, earlier in the interview, um, that the that my work really feeds into my writing, I I, I would really like to keep both going if I could. Um, I, I actually do really love being a GP and um, I've you know the the writing I I love it but it's a hard slog sometimes and it can be quite isolating Um, and so I like being able to put that away go to my clinic and you know interact with people and be re-inspired by stories um about you know their love and loss and grief and um because all of that is 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 relevant um to kind of understanding the human condition and all of that feeds into the writing anyway so I find them to be quite complementary they kind of feed different parts of my brain um yeah and are you working on your next manuscript now? Uh, no, I'm not physically writing anything yet. Um, Is it in the, your brain? <laughs> I don't have anyone forcing me to write a synopsis at this stage. <laughs> yes. But, um, perhaps that's what I need. Um, I have like the germ of an idea. Uh, Did that come from a new story? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's actually um, so the last story in the Australia Day collection um, is called A Good and Pleasant Thing. It's based around um, three Chinese sisters um, who are living in Australia. Um, and I really enjoyed writing that kind of um, family dynamic. And I think I'd like to explore that more, not necessarily those characters, but I would like to, um, you know, write a, I don't know if it would be a saga, but a family story mm. about, you know, um, yeah, a Chinese Australian migrant family. Um, yeah. So well, I'll give you a tip. Just, just, just write a synopsis <laughs> and you'll be set because <laughs> clearly that works for you. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> All right. And, and finally, what would be your top three tips, you know, advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position where you are one day where they will be able to fulfill their dream of being published and writing? Okay, so top three tips. Um, I mean, one, I would say, firstly, read. Um, yeah. Read widely and read outside of your genre um, and read a lot within your genre as well um, because I often feel when I'm getting um, stuck um, in, a, in a piece of work, the best thing I can do is go read my favorite author or, you know, a really inspiring work. And that kind of just re-energizes me and reinvigorates me to come back um, to the manuscript. Um, my second tip would be to, um, you know, Stephen King says, write with the door closed and rewrite with the door open. And um, I really love that because, I think I was only ever successful in um, any submissions after I started showing my work to people mm. and not to friends or family who are either going to be very critical um, or alternatively just say, oh, it's wonderful, and um, neither of those are particularly helpful. So, you know, writer friends or a writer's group is really great for once that first draft is all nutted out and you just need a fresh pair of eyes, it's scary, but I think it's really essential. Um, and, you know, the, th the third thing is to, you know, the first point was to read, but the third tip I would say is to actually physically write because I think a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about their writing and what they're going to do and the ideas and it's so beautiful in your head um, but it's the process of you know translating that idea in your head um, onto the page that is so painful and so difficult um but so necessary um and i yeah so i think it is a hard slog um and i think sometimes um emerging writers myself included think um it shouldn't be that it should be easy and it should flow and if it isn't flowing then you're you've got writer's block but that that's just the process i mean that's what you've got to go through and if you write hundreds of pages of just rubbish there might be one great little nugget in there and that that you know then it's worth it you know all of those hours spent are worth it for that little nugget of gold yeah great and on that note thank you so much for joining us today melanie thanks valerie thanks for having me 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There we go, Melanie Cheng. Great interview. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by these people. Like, you know, like when people say to me, I have no time to write a novel, I just think we should just create a wall of GPs who are also writing books, don't you think? Exactly, exactly. All right, so we've got to the uh, almost the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, that's a good question, Valerie. What am I doing in the coming week? I don't always know. You always ask me every week and I'm a bit like sometimes I just there's no definite thing <laughs> that I'm doing. Um, so all I can say is I will be doing generalised owl stuff. Okay, that sounds good. All right, Mm. fabulous. And you, what are you doing? I am updating one of our courses and giving it a bit of a refresh and a revamp. Um, So that should be fun. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter and you will find me on Twitter at at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, that's K-H-O-O for Valerie Koo, and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au and um, make sure you connect with us in the Facebook group as well. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.